0: How do people come back to the hobby? What kinds of games make it easy to get back to the gaming table? Is there anything in particular that anyone could recommend?
1: If you say the real life fills up your days and you don't have time to play or well midlife is it's time to start a new role-playing phase. And you need a rescue. Chase coming at you with a rescue. A role-play rescue. Chase going to help my friend. Let's sit down to game again. Rescue.
0: My name is Che Webster. And this is Roleplay Rescue. Hello Rescuers, welcome back. This one's a little bit of an experiment. I basically have received, first of all, a whole host of excellent call-ins over the last few weeks, and secondly, and more importantly, I also received a particularly special call-in from a particularly special person. Josh Beckelheimer is the creator of JB Publishing, and you can listen to his podcast, JB Publishing, But he also has published, as I understand it, many, many one-page dungeons for a particular game. Which game, you might be asking? Well, that game was Swords and Wizardry, published by Frog God Games. In Dungeon Master's Diary number 22, right at the end, I picked up my copy of Swords and Wizardry and I asked the question, you know, should I be getting into this? And I was wondering how to get into this. And I think Josh heard that episode and, well, what he did is he picked up his phone and he recorded what I would describe as a testimony. A testimony is where somebody gives their own reasons for getting into something or for buying something or for believing something. Salespeople love testimonies and they kind of have, in some ways, a misunderstood application because the true value of a testimony is that it's a personal opinion from somebody that you trust. I've heard many people stand up and tell me about the experiences that they've had throughout their lives and I always take the attitude of listening very carefully to them. Even if this is way outside of my own experience I always feel that a personal testimony Has incredible value. And so today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to play Josh's testimony. I'm going to wrap that up in a kind of bundle of call ins from lots and lots of great people from around the community. And I'm going to hope that as an episode, it stands on its own well. Before we start, massive thank you to all of the callers in this episode, starting with Josh Beckelheimer, but also including Arlen Walker. Frank T., Jason Connolly, Ray Otis, Royler Co., and Shandy Andy. Let's dive in. This is Series 5, Episode 16, The Beckelheimer Testimony.
2: Rescue!
3: A really weird thing happened um, yesterday. It was yesterday evening, really. Um, Chuck Thorin actually put up a video about Swords and Wizardry, um, kind of in response, I think, to the current Kickstarter for the box set. And he dug out his copy of um, The Complete Rulebook. You know, that lovely blue cover, Aerolitis, is it? And I watched the video, It's about 11 minutes of him chattering on about it, which was kind of positive. And it just struck me that um, I've never really played this game. I've never really gone there and I'm kind of hoping for some advice and maybe if you're listening to this and and you can help me make this transition, what do I need to do? Because I honestly don't quite know where to start. And I think I have to get out of this comfort zone of leaning on complexity I think I have to go there I have to kind of strip it back and see what it's like and I don't know if I'll stay there but I feel like this is something I have to do and I don't know can you help me with that?
4: Swords and wizardry complete I owe Matt Finch pretty much everything when it comes to me getting into the hobby. with I started, I'm younger, I started D&D whenever 3.0 was out. And to be fair, I never actually really played though. I knew of d and um, the bookstores, I would look at these game books, I mean, I would flip through the pages, even games like, you know, World of Darkness, Vampire, all of this stuff when I was younger. I mean, I was blown away by it, flipping through all this stuff. Well, and I knew of the novels, and I knew of Forgotten Realms because of games like Baldur's Gate, uh, Icewind Dale, this kind of stuff. I mean, I grew up playing video games and uh, PC games. And so I never really got into gaming, truly, until, you know, like, after high school. But I remember I begged and begged my parents to get me that Player's Handbook. And, you know, it's like a $50 book, even back then. But I got that book, and I remember I would spend hours creating the characters, kind of knowing how combat worked, but I would create characters, and I would f- have them fight each other. That was really my real experience with D&D in the beginning. And then um, my uncle, who was in the Air Force, he got into gaming. He was gaming in the 80s, but because of the whole satanic panic, he you know, my grandmother kind of shut that down and all that stuff. But he got back into gaming while well, he was in the Air Force, and I was in high school, and... Well, he came and visit and his friend from where he grew up came by. And that was my first true experience in playing D&D. I mean, we were like these mid-level characters. I was just a human fighter. It was like these undead creatures. And then eventually we had to fight a mind flayer at the end. And I was just blown away by it. And then, you know, I dabbled here and there with my buddy you know and then when fourth edition came out we were living together and he bought the player's handbook we played around with it and then we noticed that there would be a virtual tabletop coming once all the books were released like awesome so we decided that we were just going to wait we didn't want to run a game and maybe you know find a game online to play together and you know that never came out so we never really played fourth edition And then I never really played anything after that because we just got hooked into World of Warcraft and other online PC games. And then, you know, I had a kid. But then whenever my daughter turned around, you know, six years old, I wanted to get back into the hobby. And I wanted my daughter to, you know, experience what I experienced in my first gaming session of this amazing new world of doing whatever you wanna do. So I did some research and I discovered Pathfinder. And I discovered that because I because really, I was told that it was pretty much 3.0, 3.5, the version that I, you know, I had the book of and so I was like perfect. I bought it and I read through it. I was like, okay, yeah, this is familiar. I know how to make characters already. This won't be bad. And then I realized being a player and a DM are two different things. And I discovered that I cannot be a dungeon master with Pathfinder. So then I did online researching of how can I make Pathfinder easier? I found tips and stuff, but it still seemed very challenging and difficult. And somehow all my online research led me to this thing called OSR. And through there, I found Swords and Wizardry, and I saw that it was a free, complete book for a PDF. Downloaded it, read through it, and I was blown away. And at the time I was working third shift at some retail store. So I uh, loaded up on one of their computers and I printed that entire book at work while it was just me in the middle of the night and then I went and bought a three ring binder and I put it all in there and I still have that printed version of that game and that's when I started gaming with my daughter and it made it a whole lot easier and yes the classes can be very difficult at the beginning of the game and these are things that we learned as we gamed um, so with like swords and wizardry how you were talking about, you know, the you know, the wizard and like it's one spell. That sucked. I mean, even whenever I was reading I was like, ooh, that's harsh. But I didn't have to worry about that because she didn't want to be a wizard. So I didn't have to worry about it. And then she got older and wanted to experience other classes and stuff, that became an issue. So then we're like, you know what? We're already adventurers who cares? So I started her out at a much higher level and like, okay, here's a couple of magic items you've already been adventuring. Let's just have fun. We just did one shots anyways. And not only that, it got me in to creating. Like I didn't know I could just make my own stuff for my own games. I mean, online research opened all of those doors. To where I'm like, oh man, people are creating things for the Swords and Wizardry game. Maybe I can do that. And then I started doing that with my, like, one-page adventures that were designated to be used for Swords and Wizardry. Because again, with my DM style and my anxiety, I couldn't run modules. But I found a way that I can have information in front of me and use that to game with my daughter and now my daughter's 13. Um, I now have a son. He's like four, and he's getting into the gaming. I mean, we've even played um, hero kids together, and we use the six-sided dice that have dots on it so he can count. Like, okay, so how many do you have? And he can count them, and he can tell me, and he even knew the rules of the game where, you know, he even knew while he was counting, if he was successful or not, but it was fun. He loved rolling the dice. He loved moving the miniatures on the map. So I really owe all that to Swords & Wizardry. I mean, honestly, if I never found the OSR, I probably would have given up because I just assumed D&D was just D&D and there was nothing else out there. So I really owe Matt Finch, the creator of Swords & Wizardry, pretty much everything to my gaming
0: right now. And I don't know about you, but I found that absolutely fascinating and amazing. The power of role-playing games, ladies and gentlemen. Now, Josh, thank you so much for calling in and sharing that testimony with us. And I'm kind of hoping that actually maybe other people would follow suit. It was absolutely amazing. Now, if you want to find out more about Josh, then I'm going to stick links to Jebby Publishing's podcast in the um, show notes. I'm also going to stick a link to Swords and Wizardry, so you can go and get that freebie if you're interested. And thirdly, I am going to stick a link to the current Swords and Wizardry Kickstarter, which is going on right now at the time in which this episode is airing. And guys, seriously, it is a tremendously popular game. And it's a tremendously simple game. I had a good look through it this week, and it's not where I'm going right now, but it is where I'm very tempted to go next, I have to admit. And hearing from Josh, well, it really did make me sort of sit up and think, what is the real value of going back to some of these simpler, older iterations of Dungeons & Dragons? I don't know, but I'll tell you what, I really appreciated Josh calling in. I'm going to stop wittering. I'm going to play the rest of the call-ins. I'm going to wrap this episode. Let's dive in.
5: Rescue. Hey, Jay, it's Arlen Walker, um, live from Pelham's Wasteland. I just listened to your interview with Douglas Cole on GURPS, um, because I have been reading his dragon heresy game and, um, yeah, I just wanted to say it was really cool uh, to listen to, um, the, your interviews are really neat. Um, I'm glad you, you get such cool people to come talk on your show about cool things. Um, as far as GURPS goes, I have played one session of GURPS so far, and it was fun, but um, I have a number of the books. So I'm thinking after your talk that I might need to pull them off the shelf and start reading more heavily and and figure out how to run some GURPS. So thank you. Um, I guess I'll, I'll keep listening.
2: Hey, Trey. As far as prepping a pre-written module I like to look at them as somebody else's notes on what is possible or what they think should happen what I personally do is read through the module decide where the major encounters are uh, break it down then into those encounters and create sort of a flow chart as to how you might get from one encounter to another. And encounters could be just that. Encounters, they could be rooms, they could be locations. Generally, what I do is I take take those notes and then more or less rewrite the adventure if you will as I would write out an adventure and when I write out an adventure I usually have encounter areas And those could be anything from a single room to a social encounter to multiple rooms or like a a dungeon crawl. But what what I do is I look at the location as a whole in much the same way you might use zones in fate and so there is a location and I have uh, the connections for those locations so what is connected how Where? where can I go from that location then I have uh, keywords that I use for description so there's the keywords for what describes the area uh, some people call them tags, I guess, but anyway it's it's the things that just dis- that physically describe the area, and then I have things that are discoverable in that area, and again, I'm just using keywords i don't I don't maybe sentences, but for the most part, I just use you know d- just a few words to to describe things. And then um, if there's any uh, actual encounters in that area, whether it's uh, wandering monsters or uh, people, you know, whatever, whatever the interactions are with the area. And I think, yeah, interactions is probably the best word because it's really about the... It doesn't have to be a physical combat encounter, right? It it could be, especially if you're talking about sci-fi. You know, the AI of a ship might actually be the interaction that the people have, or the characters have in in a, in a location. And then I have sort of a special thing that I that I throw in and. Essentially, it's my, it's, I use it to sort of ramp things up or increase the tension for an encounter or an, a location. And it's just a list of things that I might be able to throw out at a moment's notice that would up the tension. In a space whether it's somebody has a critical fail on a roll or the The pace is running a little bit too slow uh, I'm not I mean, I, I don't I like the idea that uh, if you've read Hamlet's hit points I Haven't read through it, but I'm familiar with the concept because it's he uses uh, film and uh theater as his uh examples but in in film we use the this idea of beats and you have upbeats downbeats and a handful of other tertiary beats but essentially there are upbeats and downbeats in most movies and i'm not going to go into it because i don't want to spoil movies for you for the rest of your life but one when you're playing you always want to have an upbeat followed by a a downbeat and a good variety of all of those because that's what really makes for, I think, for successful gameplay. Um, Interesting gameplay. So in some ways well in a lot of ways I, and maybe it's because of my career but i really look at uh being uh, the the job of the game master as the director of a movie
4: hey josh beckelheimer here so i love that interview that you had with gavin especially when you guys got to the point of designing a role-playing game book for new gamers um it's it's beautiful. That book is beautiful. And it is easy for a new gamer to read it and understand how the game works. And personally, I think that all role-playing games should be designed that way. And it's not because, you know, not everyone's going to be a new gamer. But we get assumptions about games. We've read so many games that when we see one rule, we're like, oh, so it's going to be like this game. So you kind of glaze over all the stuff that makes this new game unique, and I think it's important that you treat all role-playing game books as if a new player is going to touch it and read it for the very first time.
1: Mr. Webster Roy here from Chaos's Limb. Just finished series two of Roleplay Rescue, Uh, and I don't have too much of significance to add. just want to say I really enjoyed the uh, material that you reviewed on Arduin. I had heard of it, didn't know anything about it. So it was really an eye opener. Fascinating stuff. Hi,
6: Jay. This is Ray. I recently brought up the idea of simulationism on your podcast through a call in, and you were curious as to what I meant by that. And then as a result, I was curious as to what I meant by that. <laughs> I'm one of those people that often doesn't know what he thinks until he hears himself say it out loud. Uh, so I thought maybe we could talk through this together a little bit. And I'm going to start from a really weird place. Uh, there's a phrase that, that pops into my head, and I'm, I want to define it for myself. But I'm going to say that I want to start with the definition of simulationism as answering a what-if question with as little bias as possible. When I think of simulation, I first think of war games and the idea of playing out a historical battle with, uh, to see how different results or different factors would change the results. First of all, I think you sort of want to play to see how, uh, how likely the actual historic outcome was. And once you feel like you have the, the, I don't know, uh, potential factors in hand uh, and that it plays to your satisfaction, then you try out different strategies. What if uh, they had better equipment or what if it was rainy that day, right? And that kind of simulation in a war game is is endlessly fascinating, I think, to people who play war games. Now, for role-playing games, it's a little different, isn't it? It's not just a matter of how many Shermans does it take to beat a Panzer. Uh, I think in role-playing simulation Especially in fantasy role-playing, it's a really problematic and, and funny phrase to try to make a fantasy world as realistic as possible. But I do feel like it comes from this concept that the fantasy world will feel more real if the underpinning rules and equipment lists and uh, uh, prescribed behaviors of various pieces of equipment... And weather and all that kind of stuff uh, feel as real as possible because they will help all the unreality, all the fantastical ideas be underpinned by realistic, relatable things that we experience every day. So, is this one of the types of fun? I don't know. Um, I think I'm just talking about simulationism at this point. It's a whole different thing. But I do think that some people really engage with and enjoy fiddling around with these sorts of things. Like, how, um, how great was the Mongol uh, recurved horn short, short bow, right? The horse, the horseback bow. Um, I had a, a friend at, at my old gaming shop who, every time he put his miniatures on the table he wanted extra range for his bows because they were mongols and i'm thinking okay fine but that's not really fun within the game right uh because those bows should cost more points or whatever it gets into kind of endless debates when you get into that um when you get into that space I'll add one other thought, which is I don't think simulation is the same as optimization. So, you know, optimizing character builds is kind of a similar sort of fun, but that's not simulation. I think a, a true simulationist doesn't really care whether a character lives or dies or whether you quote unquote win the scenario or not. It uh, They just put things together to see what will happen. Right, um, kind of an arena of ideas, if you will. So that's uh, some rambling for me, Un- unprogrammed, unscripted, and and perhaps uh, idiotic. <laughs> I'd love to hear your thoughts on simulationism, though, and what you love about it, and whether it applies to role playing games at all.
1: Rescue! Hey, Jay Roy here. I just finished listening to your episode on Five E. Really enjoyed that. You really uh, changed my mind about a few things. Uh, I say I was pretty negative about the thought of 5E, but you helped me realize some of its positives, and I wholeheartedly agree with you that uh, having more people come to the hobby cannot be a bad thing. Yeah, so just want to tell you that I liked it, and I uh, also enjoyed uh, Mr. Spike Pitts Collins on those <laughs> the two that you played for there including the uh, Crunchmeister yeah those had me rolling
7: HA Jason here Nerds RPG Variety Cast in the car apologize about the noise just finished listening to 513 of Roleplay Rescue where you talk about role-playing versus role-playing. role-playing and I think you bring up some great points my one little niggle is player free the free agency or player agency or whatever you want to call it the choice to make the full decisions for whatever your character can do. I think there, you can kind of retain that, the player option to play however you want, but restrict the character choices a little bit by using the dice to decide what the character will do. So let me give you, and and I'm not saying you do this all the time, but let me give you an example. I had, I was playing in the Black Hat game run by Dave Aldridge, the percentile, and in that game, my character was a thief and and the party was facing a really horrible situation and the thief had all the treasure with him and they were facing a monster that was higher level than any of them and it was killing the party off and you know I decide as a player I wanted my character to stay there and fight but when you looked at the backstory of the character and the character's history and everything else it made no sense narratively for the character to stay and fight So what I did is I let the dice decide. I rolled, did a charisma roll, I failed, so I role-played the character running away and abandoning the party. And I don't think that I lost any agency there in doing that because I had a choice how I played that out. And I think there's some interesting options there, and I think you only do this under high-stress situations or situations where you're not quite sure how your character would act. But you as the player still get to role-play out however you want to role-play that out. But using the dice to decide what the character might do, I think definitely has a place. I know some people will rail against this. You're taking away my free choice. But really you're not. And it doesn't have to be a yes or no what your character does. On the Local Ludus podcast for 5 December 2019, called An AI Constraint, done by Barney, he talks about having a, a range of choices. I think he had four or five choices on his list, where you would roll... And then, you know, does does the character analyze the situation or do they do this or do they do that? And then you would role play that out. So you're not stealing choices from the player because the player can role play out what comes up on the table however they want, you know. And and you can still morph it into doing what you want to do, but maybe it, it, if nothing else, it gives players prompts on, on role playing it, right? So, I, I think there is something to that and some place for that, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on those kind of things. So, thank you for all the work you do, Che, and I look forward to the next episode.
8: Hey up, Shay, Shandy Andy here.
7: Just got some uh, musing
8: on your role playing versus role playing episode, and it's something that you highlighted that really. I've not really got to grips with yet and that was the use of hero points I mean I'm cool with role playing with an L or a double L I understand both those concepts but this thing about hero points or Benny's as I've heard it called before I had never come across until last year I think it was at the um, Albert and Wizard staff um, convention and I don't know that as that, that a Mechanism seems very contrived to me and it just doesn't sit well. Now whether that's just because it's something new and I've not quite got my head around it or maybe it's what you suggested that it appears to be a sort of adversarial with the GM. I mean I'm a very um, cooperative and collaborative type of player um, and I just wonder whether that has perhaps made me think that it it was a bit confrontational. Um, it's an interesting concept, that, but um, definitely one I need to have a, a bit more of a think about and try and um, get myself more at ease with using that type of system. Because so far it's just not, not been working for me, I must admit, as a
1: player. Hey Jay, Roy here from Chaos's Limb. Just finished listening to episode 307 from June of 2019, and wow, that's uh, really your most radical episode to date. I'm guessing it'll be one of the most controversial. Uh, There's a lot to unpack there. I'm going to have to do multiple listenings, I think, before I can comment on it all. Mm -hmm.
0: And I feel that's what happens when a community of discovery starts to talk. Thank you to all of my callers today, especially to Josh Belkoheimer from JB Publishing for the heart of this very, very episode. I also just wanted to say a quick response to Ray Otis and acknowledge that, yep, I'd very much like to talk a little bit more about simulationism, but I just couldn't fit in a reply now. I feel like it might be an episode in itself. Thank you once again to the Roleplay Rescue patrons who support the show through their generosity on Patreon. And please be aware that I now have the Roleplay Rescue blog at roleplayrescue.com. Thanks to those guys for helping me fund that and support that. And yeah, add more to what we're doing. Finally, just a massive thank you to you, the listener, for taking a little time out of your day to listen. I hope you feel that I've fulfilled my mission I'm encouraging you to play more imaginative games on a regular basis. And I'm encouraging you, I hope, to play in a way that suits you better. My name is Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. Game on.